Welcome back to Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro. I'm Ryan. And I'm Brian. And this is the Bible Bistro, a podcast all about the Bible, theology, and all things related to the Christian faith. Yeah. And we're excited. We have a, a guest with us today in the Bistro. And, yes. Uh, big day. It is. It is a really big day. We have Dr. Andrew Root, who has, he says in his bio, prefers to go by Andy. Is that right? Yeah, that will work for sure. <laughs> Glad to have him here with us. He's a professor at Luther uh, Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, he, his uh, position is youth and family ministry, but he also has done a lot of writing uh, on culture and theology. Uh, did his degree, I think, at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary and has done done a lot in that area. Uh, his wife has a wife, Kara, right? Two two kids you want yep. to say anything more <laughs> about about yourself before yeah, we? yeah no only yeah my wife's a, a presbyterian pastor here right. in uh, minneapolis so uh yeah have had a yeah 16 year uh kind of view of uh life in a small church and um, right. it's been uh, yeah it's been informative that's good well Andy's written several books, um, the, the latest two of which are The Church in an Age of Secular Mysticisms and When Church Stops Working. But before we get really into that, I just wanted to say a bit about why why we even contacted you. You may want to know why in the world we're wanting to talk to you. But uh, Ryan and I, if you, if you're, there, there's a debate in the Bistro about exactly how this happened, because we, we both had bought <laughs> Taylor's book. But I mean, you'll, you'll agree with this, I think, Andy, that it's, it's pretty daunting when you start reading it. But we both had it on our, our, our um, bookshelves or desks for quite some time. Something happened that made us pick it up, and, and we decided to read it together. And, uh, you know, we were, we were making our way through a pretty difficult text, but also one that, that I found really engaging and, and helpful. Maybe we'll talk more about in what ways. But I had another former student who, uh, along the way, said, hey, have you read, when I told him I was reading Taylor, said, have you read anything about by Andrew Root? And I said, no, I had never even heard of the guy. And so uh, <laughs> so I picked up... Uh, <laughs> Take that as... <laughs> yeah, that feels great. This yeah, I was going to say, Brian, you're not really in. endearing yourself here, man. <laughs> We've heard that name everywhere. Well, right. so I picked up... Well, he, he, this, this will redeem me, maybe. Uh, I picked up Faith Formation in a Secular Age and started reading it. And and before I'd even finished chapter two, I'd already called two of my buddies uh, who both are on the mission field. And I said, you guys need to read through this book with me. Some conversations we had, I said, I think this is going to be exactly what you need. And so we've read through that together. Um, I pretty soon called Ryan and said, you really, you really need to, to read this. Uh, the thing I appreciate about it, it, not, it helped me understand Taylor, uh, even, even better, I think in some ways, but what I really appreciated is you're kind of saying, here's how we should respond to this, mm -hmm. uh, this situation or the society that we find ourselves in relation to Taylor. So I really mm -hmm. want to say, I appreciate that. Since then we've read some other stuff. We've discovered your, your podcast, yeah. a really good <laughs> podcast. We enjoyed, uh, in fact, I just listened to your latest episode. If you want to say anything about that, uh, um, I found it really interesting, but that podcast is, uh, well, I found it in a new time religion, but uh, mm -hmm. lately you've named it after your your book when church okay, stops yeah. working. Yeah, so, yeah. but I will say this, Andy, if if it helps at all, uh, since I've become aware of you, I, I mention you all the time, and there's been several <laughs> people that I've mentioned you to said, "Oh yeah." In fact, I was in a uh, Maggie Miley's pub, which you'll know. Um, Ryan, there in in uh, in normal. Mm -hmm. I was there the other day, and one of my former students walked in, and we were talking. And I said, "Hey, have you heard of this guy Andrew Root?" And he picks up when he had a stack of books with him, and he picks one of them is uh, <laughs> when church stops working. So, yeah. so you are out there. Um, You've uh, deceived yourself. Our now, now I don't feel you quite are out as, there. Yeah, you are out small. there. Yeah, <laughs> you're out there. We're done. That's really. It really says is more about my saying? ignorance yeah. than it. Yeah, there it is. There it is. It's more about him, not you. Yeah. So anyway, so I wanted to start though, just just this discussion by asking. I, I'm interested in because because you Taylor underlies basically. I think you said even your latest podcast. He's the patron saint of your podcast, right? Yeah. And uh, um, you know he underlies all, all your books. Uh, you yeah. refer to him frequently. How did you first get interested in him? Is is one of the things I'm I wanted to hear yeah. about, and and why did you find it so important you think to to yeah. concentrate it's it's a great question I, I remember being asked i was like a new faculty member assistant professor and being asked to review a secular age it was probably okay. 
2008. That book came out in 2007. It was Seven, it was fairly four. early on, wow. um, and it really did take like the theology world. I think you know a good three four years to kind of catch yeah. on to the significance of of, of that book. Um, and I think we're still trying to catch up in some ways. But I remember reviewing it, reading it. I mean, first of all, I said yes to the to the review and figured it would be, you know, like a 300 page book and <laughs> then went to my box and had it sent to me, you know, my box at my school. And it was this tomb of a book, you know, yeah. that mm-hmm. I was afraid if it fell on my head, it would concuss me, you know, like just an incredibly <laughs> put it on a low shelf people. That's my first point of advice. Um, and, uh, but read it and like had no clue what was going on. Ended up writing, you know, a 700 word review or something was like, I don't know that I know okay. what's going on here. I, I had a sense that it was a significant piece of work, right. but mm. it was done. It did look really good on a low shelf, you know, that have, <laughs> have read that book and kind of forgot about it, to be honest, or, you know, try to move on. And then I had a, a, a Templeton grant. And in that Templeton grant, we we had inter, we were doing some faith and science stuff with with young people, particularly with high school age kids, and we did some surveys with them. And all of a sudden, like these flashbacks to yeah. Taylor and what they were saying. And so I reread it, and uh, and then yeah, just found a bunch of uh, significant connections being made. And really, my my whole project from the beginning is really not, I I would never think of myself as an interpreter of Taylor. Really, you know, like I I don't right. know. That I, I think there are people who do that for a living who are pretty amazing and you know write peer-reviewed articles. I feel like I've mined Taylor to be able right. to to descriptively name something and then try to give a theological response to it. Yeah. And my theological response is very Protestant and would probably make Taylor <laughs> very uncomfortable yes. as a Catholic. But it's very you know so yeah. that's been really and I've gone back to him and. and there's a there's a Catholic priest I know in in Australia, and we both agree that a secular age is kind of a magical book in the sense that every time you read it, it's different. There's right. some kind mm-hmm. of it, it. He needed an editor, as people often say. It's <laughs> right. 770 yes. pages. But one of the beauties of not having an editor is you can dive in and you right. see arguments and depths that you didn't see the last time you read it. And yeah. so, in some ways, I've thought of Taylor as someone who likes to. I guess as a spiritual practice, as a sickness, tried to write a lot. Right. You can always go back to Taylor, and it's like yeah. a it's like a quarry of of fine stones that you can pull out of that thing, yeah, almost and, like Kurt Kierkegaard or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somebody's so, writing all the time, but yeah, but yeah. The, and and for me, I was introduced in in my master's program to the phrase explanatory power, and that for mm-hmm. me was you know because you're reading and you're and you're looking around you and you're going, oh, he's he's got his. Yeah. finger on the pulse of something that's happening around us and, yeah. and is describing it as you said naming it so and, and so you think I mean you kind of answered that question but you think it's important for the church just because he's describing kind of our situation yeah I think he's describing what to me feels like the core problematic of right. the church today and particularly of the minister which is how do you speak of a living God? And why does it feel like the whole current of everything you do, even as a pastor, is kind of moving you away from speaking boldly about a living God who's doing things in history? You know, like uh, in some sense, in the mainline, people are embarrassed to talk like that. And in more evangelicalism, people all of a sudden get kind of more interested in in some kind of innovative market kind of perspectives or something. Like, you know, there are all sorts of different reasons to do ministry that I think overlook the real task of how do we speak of a living God in the world. And, And I think Taylor tells us descriptively how we've come to a society that can say things like, you know, we're taking a break from God for a while. You know, so people in middle class settings can say to their pastor or think it or a pastor herself or himself could say like, I'm just going to take a break from God for a while. You know, like I just, I need to, I need to be into interested in something else for a while. And the fact that that can be said means that you're in a very (laughs) weird kind of society, a very kind of different kind of society. And I think that way. Yeah. And and we we had a pod, we we did a, episode a few weeks back where we we kind of talked about this and and Taylor's term social imaginary is yeah. is he's saying this is something even the church is affected by and that's what I think is really important this is so pervasive in our society that that we kind of unconsciously do it. I, I've used this as an example a couple of times. Who, who's your co-host on your podcast? What's his name? Uh, Derek Tronsgaard is his uh, name. Uh, yeah, he yeah. used the example I think when he was out with a group of pastors at a restaurant, and and this mm-hmm. to me 
was, you know, this, the, the light went off when he, when he said this, but, but he says, you know, we're getting ready to pray aloud in this restaurant and here's this group of pastors and we kind of feel sheepish about it. Yeah. And, and I think that speaks to the pray. He said, that's the pressure, right? That's the, yeah. that's the social imaginary kind of pressing on us. Yeah. And, and that was when you and I picked up Andrew, your book, and when we read Taylor, one of the things that kind of messed with us was thinking through the pre-modern and, and thinking through the problems we have in the church is like, how do we, how do we make church touch the transcendent in some way? Yeah. Like realize that there is something different about that. And I think as Brian said, the explanatory power is we kind of went through your book to see that you're kind of explaining in some ways, Taylor has this huge tome from 1500 to, you know, <laughs> right. today, yeah. but you yeah. know, but you're, you're kind of focusing on this really unique time of especially U.S. history of what's going on and, and what's happening right. in culture and how we start to get to this place of, you know, the mm-hmm. Nova effect of, you know, uh, going through all these different things uh, of belief. So how did, I'm interested, I think the most interesting for me is like that you're in youth ministry and you saw yeah. this, you know, like I teach a Sunday school class for for kids and, and I've got two kids right now and I'm, you, how, how did you get into that? To, to, it seems like you kind of came in the back door <laughs> to, to talk about these problems. Why, why from, there, from that perspective? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, by no sense, I'm like a, you know, a moral philosopher or something, you know, which is kind of how people come in or, or some kind of analytical theologian who then, you know, is, is congruent with uh, kind of moral philosophy in some ways. But really, you know, in, for the most, well, yeah, I would say most directly, I'm a, a professor of ministry, you know, so that's, that's really my concern. Um, and so there were certain kind of cultural philosophical elements that Taylor told us about. But as someone who really is attending to ministry as as a form of action, I also really want to attend to ministry as a form of divine action, that God acts through ministry itself, that God is a minister into the world, bringing salvation, bringing healing, bringing new life into it. Um, And yet it's so easy, I think, for Protestant pastors right now to almost undersell ministry. You know, like if they could if they could somehow be a business expert or if they Mm. could somehow be, I mean, even a trainer or a life coach or a therapist Mm -hmm. or all of those things seem to have more value to them than what it really means to be a pastor or a minister, what it really means to see your life as giving it over to the practice of ministry. And so I, I really came at Taylor with a theological interest in trying to lift up ministry as the place where the divine and the human encounter each other. That when we participate in these moments of really caring for others, when persons are deeply in relationship and sharing each other's experiences of death for the sake of life, then then there is an experience of revelation. There's an experience of God making God self-known, of, of, of new life breaking forth. And again, Taylor kind of gives us the reasons why that that's a hard thing that goes against right. the current, like you were saying. Um, but yeah, so it really is, it really, since my, I guess my earliest days writing and thinking, it's it's really been Bonhoeffer's question that's framed me more than anything, which is how do you name the concreteness of revelation? Like how mm. how do you name to people the way Jesus Christ is is unveiling uh, himself and in, in bringing new life to people? Like that's that's the real challenge, and um, inside this kind of post enlightenment and then in this kind of secular age as it's taken its shape that becomes a real difficult task right. of how that doesn't just slide into some kind of aesthetic or some kind of ethic or some kind of uh, cultural culturalized religion but how right. do we know when we're encountering the very being of god what's how do we what's our wager we make of of how that that takes shape and what i really want whether it's for youth ministers or, or pastors is to have their imagination shaped about around how God acts and moves and how right. they want to take practices to do that. And I think Taylor helps us diagnose why that's so hard, really. Um, it, it makes a ton of sense that you said, you know, I'm not coming to this as a cultural philosopher. That's why your books are so useful, I think, and, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and, and available to us. Do you have, what's, of course, we, you know, there's lots of them. You you wrote this, these six books in order to answer this question. But if you, the, our listeners, many of them may not pick up all six of your books, you know, but what, what would be, a, <laughs> we're encouraging them. We're encouraging, encouraging them to, and, and we definitely will. 
But I have I have all six of them. I have them all. Yeah. So and we, we have them on our them website. The first, uh, you don't have to read them. You just have to have. I just them. have the yeah. bottom shelf right next to Taylor. <laughs> right. So uh, what would be a couple of couple of things that you would want congregations to kind of take? You know, members of congregations to take away from from this. You've already given us some some ideas, yeah. and maybe what are a couple of suggestions you'd have for people to you know how to respond in our in our age and our time? Would you say? Yeah, I mean, I, a, a couple things I would say that that have come out of this the, the whole project is a certain kind of, and this is at the heart of Taylor's project that we all are secular. So there isn't right. a, a you know a, a, a us versus them in some sense, but there is a claim we have to make about how it is that we uh, the words Taylor would use is kind of find a deep sense of fullness or meaning. And for me, that that does kind of take the shape of like how do you name where God is acting and moving? Um, how do how do you really reflect on that and think about that? The, again, the 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 wager I've made is one that's very similar to Bonhoeffer's that it really is when persons are in relationship caring for each other, um, you know, that Jesus Christ is present there, that Jesus Christ is is moving there. So how do we create spaces for people to make confessions, not really of their spiritual excellence, but of their need, right. of their opening their lives up to being cared for by each other, and that there is a great mystery that happens in that dynamic of um, sharing each other's lives, particularly through our losses, our brokenness, our needs, that uh, becomes in its broadest way sacramental for me, that, that the infinite and the finite participate in those in those moments. Right. Mm. That's good. You, you use a um, Michael Gorman's work a lot in the first yeah. book, and and I think even this this sixth book, which which I read before before we came on here, the you you go back to that idea of the theology of the cross and cruciformity, which yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean it is central, right? I mean, yeah. it's not like you you went, oh gee, maybe we'll make the cross central, but <laughs> but but I do think you have a uh, you know, and, and you're building on Gorman here, but you have a unique way of of, of talking about you know, how that looks in our lives. And, and I, I, I love the way you talked about telling those stories too, t- telling, sharing that in community and, and talking about that to, to participate in one another's lives. Um, and so I think that's, that's a great, great solution. Any, anything else that you would, you would mention? Yeah, no, only to say that the theology of the cross is really a kind of central piece for sure. me that, you know, that goes back to Luther and this sense that God makes God self known primarily um, in right. brokenness and loss and that that the that the cross even more than just a kind of uh a kind of forensic uh, doctrinal point is an invitation um, to really bear the the sufferings of one another, and in bearing and consoling one another, um, that God moves in the midst of that. There's a there's a mystery at play, but that also does have this impetus, I think, to narrate those experiences, to tell stories, and and this does link up with Taylor, where Taylor thinks we are. I mean, that the whole Taylor's project really is a philosophical anthropology project. He wants to. Know Know, like what kind of human beings are we? And mm-hmm. he thinks we're the kind of human beings uh, who have always have moral visions, whether it's explicit mm-hmm. or implicit. We right. always have some vision, some sense of what it means to live well, of what it means to to live fully. Um, we sometimes have bad ones, but we have some kind of vision that right. of what it means to live well. And so we are these kind of moral believing kind of animals is, is who we are. But the only way you can have these moral kind of senses of what is good is through a story. You have to, we, we all have our identities through, through stories. And so transformation, I think, happens through these deep senses of, of story. And that's what I was picking up from Gorman particularly is that yeah. this sense of transformation occurs in his reading of Paul um, when Paul starts to tell his own life story um, as the story of crucifixion, resurrection, um, that that becomes really transformational. And that actually is so deeply transformational that he is in Christ, that his being is is in Christ. And, uh, you know, that's a really radical claim that Paul yeah. is making, is that, you know, you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. And, and a lot of that book was really inspired from the way we talk about kind of faith and uh, right. Protestantism, right. and we tend to have it be co-opted by sociologists, and yeah. not that yeah. that's bad. You know, that's right. good. It, we, it, sociologists tell us some stuff, but sociologists have to count things. So that's what they do, and so so easily becomes the state of faith is based on participation numbers or some kind of survey, and that does tell us something. But when you read 
Paul. You cannot assume that what he thinks faith is, is, you know, that you go to church three times a month or something, (laughs) you know, like it, it really is this sense of you no longer living in Christ living in you. There's a, you know, to use big philosophical words, there's an ontological transformation that happens here. And so what would that look like? And how do we move into that? And particularly inside the dynamics of, of this kind of secular age, how do we, how do we start to say that? How do we start to imagine and practice that uh, in, in a certain way? The, we were going to say some, Ryan. Yeah. Well, I, I, I appreciate, you know, it's, it's not just about another program. You know, I, right. I, I remember this, this sentence in the book, you know, it's, we need to start talking about transformation as ontological, not epistemological. It's not yeah. just how I think it's my very being, my very nature is transformed mm-hmm. in Christ. And I'm thinking about this, Brian and I just did an interview with <laughs> I was someone. Thinking the same, that's where I was actually going to mention We just did an you. interview with, with, uh, someone that taught with Brian, um, had left the faith, but he has come back to the faith, and it was through caring for his ill wife. Yeah, and, it's, 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 and he's washing her feet, and he has yeah. a vision. Yeah, right yeah. then, and he's like, "Who would that, make a um, who who would ever write a story about a king who washes someone else's feet as he was washing mm-hmm. his wife's feet?" And he had mm-hmm. sold all his books, given all his books away, and he's like, it's "This yeah. idea of the the Philippians, the kenosis, emptying himself." Don't, don't give it all away. That's that's going to be in a few weeks. Yeah, sorry, have. sorry. <laughs> But, it, an, but but it 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 you know and he, and here's the thing I like about your books in in a similar mm-hmm. vein to to Taylor Andy is that you know I was thinking about your books when he was telling that story and I was thinking here's mm-hmm. that here's that story mm-hmm. of someone you know saying you know in your first book you use this idea of you know I could do this but instead I'm choosing to do this and here right. here is the result uh, kind of that taking on the the yeah. form of a servant and you yeah. Know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Powerful stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my theological interests really are. I mean, you can see how the Taylor becomes descriptive to this. Is this assertion that we know God because God acts? You know, so that first of all, our challenge is how can we say that anymore? Can we say God acts? Right. Why yeah. do we? Why is our imagination framed to assume you can't say that? But if we assume God is a God who acts, and so the only God we know is the God who frees Israel from Egypt and raises Jesus from the dead, then this God who acts is a God who ministers to the world. And then the way we participate in God's life is by sharing in God's action. So ministry becomes a profound, profound reality um, that if we can minister to one another, wash the feet of one who needs consoling, that there is the possibility that that opens us up to the very being of God, that it pulls us into the very being of God. Um, and so there is a big move in that book that that Ananias becomes the minister who shares in Paul's death experience. And when we share in death experiences, um, there is the possibility that this God who takes what is dead and brings life out of it will move. And so ministry becomes this incredible burden, but this incredibly beautiful thing of walking with people in the midst of their death experiences, of creating Mm -hmm. space for them to tell the stories of their death experiences and to always giving them visions of how God moves inside death experiences through the scriptures. That's good. The, uh, I'm just curious, uh, what kind of response have you, have you heard? Here's really what I want to know. Have you seen examples or people come back to you and talked about, here's how we've implemented your program in, in our congregation and, and what kind of responses have you seen? What, what have you heard that people have done in response to what, what you've written and. Yeah, that's that's a great question, and I always, when anyone asks me that, like totally freeze. Like my brain just goes, like, are there people out there? I don't know. Does does, does anything exist beyond this room? Like all of a sudden, I have my matrix matrix experience or something. Well, I mean, the, the, this is in some sense a cop out, but also maybe the most legitimate answer is that it, it's really lived out in our little church in South Minneapolis sure. that my wife's the, the pastor of. And um, and there are others. I, I have a, a grant um, that we, we that a, a, a Lilly Endowment grant where we have 24 pastors who are, are in cohorts and they're really trying to live into it. But one of the things that we're discovering with this is it's a lot of waiting for the event, waiting for the unveiling, waiting for the moment of someone to make a confession that they're sure. at a death experience. Um, and so it becomes much more of a posture, I think, than an actual doing. Um, like, you know, we've done all this. There's a lot of storytelling. There's a lot of ways of, of folks preaching kind of sermons uh, that, that connect with this stuff. But really, it's ultimately um, a kind of invitation 
to the long, slow sure. uh, walk with people, you know, the faithful yeah. walk in the same direction. And yeah. that's what I've heard more back is that I think one of the greatest privileges I've had writing these books is there's been a, a lot of pastors and, and other ministers who have told me, like, these books have kept them in ministry, that they were at a point of burnout, that they right. were at a point of despair, and that this this gave them some encouragement to continue. And, and to me, that's that's the ultimate um, ultimate privilege and ultimate um, compliment. Yeah. So just for clarification for our listeners, when you say death experience, you're talking not a physical death experience, but the spiritual, like telling be. the story of how, or <laughs> it, could, it could be yeah, an yeah. actual physical death yeah. experience. Yeah. I, I mean, a deep sense of kind of loss of need, um, of coming up against your limit, you know, like in, in that, in that Acts 9 story, Paul has a whole story he's living. I mean, it's very, my read of it is most definitely inspired by Gorman, but also kind of Taylor's anthropology here that right. Paul has a sense, and this is Gorman's point, that he has Phineas on his mind, you know, that he's mm. going to to be the one like Aaron's uh, grandson to purify the boundary, to to make sure that uh, everything's in right order. And so therefore he's going to go persecute this crazed group of of folks who are saying that this dead Nazarene has risen from the dead, and and then he's knocked to the ground, and judgment comes upon him uh, in the encounter of the person of Jesus Christ, and his whole story, he loses his whole story. And so right. it becomes a death experience of everything he was living for, of his very identity of who he was, was lost, and it's, it's given back to him in a very different way. And now he has this identity that he no longer lives, but Christ lives in him, yeah. and that out of some experience of loss and need and and, um, of brokenness, that he finds the ministering spirit of God who who, who brings yeah. brings new life. So that, that's what I, I mean. I mean it in a kind of broader mm-hmm, way than yeah. just than just dying, though. That's part part, <laughs> that's of, part it, of it, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, we're considering all these things rubbish for the surpassing um, yeah. no, to know Christ, basically. Yeah. So, yeah, so the the other, I like that, I, and I'll tell you, it's changed my preaching. Uh, a few years ago, when we were working through through Taylor, you know, I kept saying to my church, "There's this book that's really kind of rocking me." And 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 I think some people took that to mean you're you're losing your faith or you're you're questioning your faith, which wasn't it at all. But it was more, wow, this is like you said, it's it's showing me the problem. It's it, it's showing mm-hmm. me w- why we have the rise of the nuns, as we've talked about before. Why we have. Um, you know, uh, lessen church attendance. Why we have a, young people who don't seem to be as engaged as as their grandparents, especially and and parents. So so that's what I meant, and and it left me kind of like I I don't know what to do. Right, I see the problem. I don't know what to do, but I will say your books have given me uh, language and and has has changed my preaching already. And and some of the questions I've been asking recently really have to do with. Um, what does the church have to offer that, that other organizations? Yeah. You, you use the illustration. I think I can't remember if this was in your podcast or in a book about uh, uh, sports. You, you know, you're like Sunday sports isn't the problem. The problem is why do kids seem so much more engaged in that? Why does that give their life meaning in a way that yeah. that their participation in church doesn't? You know, their participation mm-hmm. in the in the body doesn't. So it's it's helped me too. I will say I just was wondering if there were other people who were kind of putting it into practice. I I, I, yeah. I can't wait to hear about the. Well, the I know as soon as we're hand. done, I'll think of like three oh. examples that are you know like that would have been like That's oh fine. gosh that would have been That's so fine. good. But yeah. has the reception been been mostly positive? Then would you say to your to your whole project? Yeah, I mean, or? except to people who don't know who I exist at all, like <laughs> like you, Brian. I mean, other. <laughs> well, thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, I had someone. I want you to know I appreciate you for roasting him. <laughs> Yeah, Ryan's usually no. the he's yeah. usually the one gets roasted on this podcast. That's that yeah. is the truth. <laughs> yeah, I think it's been good. I mean, I I, uh, I try not to pay attention too much. You know what I mean? Like, there's a just a try to put one foot in front of the other, and I I feel like uh, I've been blessed that people are reading it. Um, you know, in a pretty broad pretty broad kind of environment across across right. different Protestant communities. So I feel very thankful for that. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, <laughs> try to remind myself of, you know, what I'm preaching essentially, which sure. is, you know, just, just to, to be faithful to, to um, seeking for God. And for me, kind of sitting in this little room you see me in right now and, and, and typing away is, is my, uh, my spiritual practice, uh, however God wants to use it. So, yeah. Well, 
I, I just want to say, you know, what I appreciate about it, some of this approach there, you talk about some of these pastors that, you know, I'm sta- they've stayed in ministry because of some of these things. Yeah. I, I'm not in ministry right now. I went to Bible college. I uh, worked in, um, it was from about 2005 to 2010, 2004 in there. And coming out of that, it was this sense that we needed to compete with the, you yeah. know, the cult. We're, we're, we're trying to create these experiences. And it was like, I, mm-hmm. I remember towards the time of my time in the church feeling very burned out like i like yeah. we just keep cr- trying to create these moments like yeah. and why aren't people responding to this but it you know to the, the perspective that you've given is um for, for my take I'm, though i'm not in ministry it's like it's a very liberating perspective like mm-hmm. it it is not about we were trying to compete before yeah. you know we were trying to make the enticement thing and like we're going to lose that we're going to lose that you know and it's right. we're trying to, to make it as fun as yeah. something else that could do, but like, no, right. we, it's about returning the, again, as you've already said, that transcendent, like we're, we're right. engaging yeah. with a living God here. You're not going to get this somewhere else. You're not going to get this, this kind of, um, this experience yeah. somewhere else. And so I think that's, you know, those who are in church that are feeling yeah. hardened or burned out, like, I think yeah. this is a, an incredible message. Yeah. Um, yeah. cause you know, it's one thing to read Taylor and to, to get like, Oh, yep, here's the problem. You know, here's your diagnosis. But it's kind of going, okay, we know the problem and it can feel dreary and dark, but how do we, and it's kind of, it, it's returning to the roots of, not to pl- make a play on your name, but returning <laughs> to the roots of what we're supposed to be doing. You know, see, Wrong. Brian, you can have a little embarrassment moment <laughs> now, there for now, you. I appreciate that. Now he's going to roast you. Yeah, yeah that's fine. Right, I'm cool right. with it. <laughs> Brian called me really big in an episode just not so long ago. Said I was the Old Testament. I was two thirds, and he was only a third. So, well, you're six foot two. You're a big guy. So. Yeah. Anyway, what, so, no, I think that. Yeah, I yeah. think that's. I think that's right. And I think you know. Um, I think there's a certain trap here of kind of thinking like you're like you're getting it, Ryan. Like a, a certain trap. Like what do we offer in this market in a shrinking market? How do we how do we find the right kind of product, the right kind of jingle that will get people to respond? And I think one of the most fascinating things about Taylor is that he really part of the whole 700 pages is to say what you think is secular is not secular. Like what you think is the problem is not really the problem. And what you think is the problem is that fewer and fewer people are coming to church. That's, of course, you know, if you have a budget to make or you're, you know, a denominational leader trying to think about the future of the denomination, those are all issues, no doubt about it. But really what it means to live in a secular age is... uh, is that you inherit an imminent frame that right. you uh, that all forms of belief, even when you have them, become uh, there's pressure on them and they become quite fragilized. Like that, those become the issues. And what I find really fascinating about Taylor and worth always contemplating is that if we're not clear on what the problem is, we actually, out of our best intentions, may make matters worse. Right. And and that that becomes the issue when you yeah. think that this is some kind of drive to get creative, to win market share. Mm-hmm. You actually then just turn everything you do into a kind of imminent program product and you close down the imminent frame like he says and transcendence becomes shut out more so you know Mm -hmm. you you frame your social imaginary of your people in a way that uh doesn't open them up um we we become our own worst enemies in some ways in the past when 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 i was reading and that's again i will your first book is is something that every church Mm -hmm. leader every interested uh person Mm -hmm. should uh should in in this these issues should really read that because we've been shooting at the symptoms rather than really looking at the underlying, you know, problem itself, I think. So, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, we haven't read, we'll get, I'll, I'll add, uh, when, when church stops working. So could you just briefly summarize that for us and kind of wet our appetite a little bit? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Well, where that book really stands is it's, uh, it's, it's supposed to be, it's not exactly, but it kind of a synthesis of the six books. And so I had so many pastors who would email me or call me and be like, I love this book. 
I have no idea how to talk to my lay people about yeah. it. You know, like it, it's it's a it's a bit like there's no way you could drop Taylor on some you know right. your your council or yeah. your leadership team's desk. Um, but you, in some sense, you can't draw. It, it's harder. It maybe is easier. But some mm. of my books are, I don't know. Like there's there's a lot going on, and there's you, a lot of footnotes. You still do philosophical genealogy, and and, and all those I things do. are interesting to people. Intermediate, yeah. yeah. But to yeah, people yeah. like us, those are interesting. But yeah, to yeah. some people, they're going to be like, hey, yeah, just get yeah. to the point, right? Yeah. Yeah, you know, dropped it on the desk of a guy who's the CEO of an insurance company. He's like, okay, yeah, what, what's going on? So when church stops working, which is the most clickbait title you could ever come up with. You know <laughs> well I mean? done. Well <laughs> right? done. I didn't come up with it. But, you know, okay. some got, someone got paid big bucks at the publisher to come up with that. Uh, my, my What saves me is that it is definitely clickbait, but it also really is a kind of a, a two – there's 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 two ways to look yeah. at that. Yeah, I, know, thought, like, I thought that, a double yeah, entendre there. Yeah. There is a double entendre at play there that it – the church – you know, the, we, we have this sense that the church is not working, but really part of our problem is we're working too hard. We, we think we have to save ourselves from this, and maybe what we need to do is find ways to faithfully wait and learn how to pray, um, and, and it is in a sense of waiting a certain kind of waiting that um, opens us up to, to, to God's act. So it's a it's a kind of layperson uh, level uh, that gets at some of these themes. So you, you get a, a bit of Taylor. I mean, it's nearly impossible to give, sure. you know, one chapter overview of Taylor. <laughs> but, you know, you get a little bit of that. You get a little bit of the work I've done with Hartmont Rose's stuff. And, uh, and then this move into what it would be to be a church that instead of being frantically active to solve our problems, because we think it's a secular two issue, that we're losing resources, we're losing relevance. Right. So we need to get more of that and we need to go faster and faster. And I do think Protestantism is obsessed with resources. Like we become resource obsessed. And yet that that frames us in a certain way, that that locks us in the imminent frame, that burns us out, that keeps us from being able to be the kind of communities that can lean in using some classic contemplative yeah. practices of prayer and storytelling and reading scripture to really ask the question of where is God acting in our midst? Right. How do we make sense of that? How do we narrate that? How do we lean into that? So it's really kind of moving in that direction um, is, is what it's really about. We had, you know, I always love this. We have the annual meeting, which is scriptural. It's in the Bible someplace. I'm not sure where, but <laughs> but one of the things that I'm supposed to do as pastor is I'm supposed to, you know, have this kind of address. And, um, you know, I'd really preach three sermons kind of leading up to it. And, and this is one of the things I said as a solution. I said, the church has the tools to respond to these issues that we see, these changes that are taking place in our society and our culture, we've just got to make sure we're focusing on on those. <laughs> You've made it hard for me to talk, though, because you know you, you kind of talked about this idea in the first book about faith, and we always yeah. want to put some kind of adjective and yeah, like yeah, genuine yeah, yeah. faith or true faith. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and, and but but there you're talking about well a Paul like faith, right? A, yeah. a faith that is that is um, the one we see in in scripture, the one we we see in the history of the church. So. Yeah. Well, that sounds great. Well, that, and that will be helpful because I already do have some members that are reading uh, Faith yeah. Formation: A Secular oh, Age. Cool. I mean, it just we, we've got it. We've got to get a hold yeah. of this if we're going to, I think, make any yeah. any kind of. Uh, That's the idea of it: is that it's a kind of an accessible um, take on some of this. So my question is: What was your working title? What, what 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 did you call that file when you and I know how it works. Yeah. What did you call that file when you first created it? it we uh, I think it was called the Waiting Church. Oh, that, okay, yeah. that the church yeah. was about waiting and right. it was, you know, which is a very countercultural move because sure. there's nothing we hate more as late modern yeah. people than waiting. You know what I mean? And, but, uh, yeah. and yet our, our real move is that you, uh, you see this biblically, like in, in the move from Luke to Acts, it, you know, you, you, sequels are always interesting how you start <laughs> the second, you know, you can start it right where you left right. off or you can start it five years earlier or five years later. And Luke starts his sequel in Acts the second after, yeah. after the gospel ends, uh, uh, Acts starts. And we often love, you know, uh, the, Acts two, and you know at the, the after Pentecost, and we particularly love the the, the scripture verse, and right. thousands were added to their right. number. Like that just <laughs> is a delicious, delicious thought. That's an American. That's an American it's passage so right American. there. It's so late modern American. <laughs> it's unbelievable. But really, the first command that starts the church is yeah. Jesus' command to the wait. to the men in the road of Emmaus to return to Jerusalem and to wait yeah, to right. to gather into wait. The church. That's how the church starts in waiting yeah. in waiting for the spirit to arrive and waiting for Jesus to unveil Jesus self. And 
again, um, in this particular cultural moment, I think we would do better kind of being an Acts 1 kind of church yeah. than an Acts 2 kind of church. Um, and mm. neither are mutually exclusive, obviously. No. But there's a sense of what it means to kind of wait together um, for, for the Spirit of God to move, for Jesus Christ to reveal well, and, himself. And listen, you know, to wait, yeah. to listen, and to pray. You know, all yes. those, you know, I've been saying over and over again, prayer is such a countercultural act. Now, it's, a, it's really become a revolutionary act if we, if we really are praying, believing mm-hmm. in the living God. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, waiting, yeah. like you said, waiting for him to act. So. Yeah, and praying our disciplines like those disciples are. You know, they're, <laughs> right. they're disappointed, they're confused, they're, right. they, you know, a, a little bit foreshadowing Paul there. They've lost their story. They they had whole ideas of what was going to happen here. They'd given their lives up for it. And, um, you know, they're sharing and in, in, in having these moments of consolation and, and the Spirit comes and, uh, and yeah. speaks and they're ready to respond. Well, I'm going to, Ryan, do you have any other, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask my last question. This is kind of a selfish question, but I'll let you go first. And then we'll ask if, if you got any other upcoming projects you want to talk about, but Ryan, yeah. do you have any, anything? Yeah. So, so how has this played out in your small congregation there? You know, you yeah. talk about like, you know, you can only talk about how are you seeing yeah. it play out, you know, in your congregation? Yeah. Where I really see it playing out is, uh, first of all, this deep sense that in this small church, everyone is a minister. Mm. That there's a real move away from kind of being consumers of this um, or getting something out of it to what it means to come together and be ministered to as a community, but then sent out into the world to minister. Um, But the other element that I think is so important that, especially as a seminary professor, I'm so concerned about is that in these inside these narratives of decline that we lose this kind of core pastoral task of what it means to walk with people as they live and die. And so, you know, one of the most formative experiences we've had in our community is that right at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, a a relatively young woman in our our congregation in her early 40s with a young daughter got diagnosed with with breast cancer. And um, I watched Cara, my wife, just her whole ministry was the the thing you learn about in the pandemic is that actually zoom is terrible for a lot of stuff, but it's great to pray with people like a small group of prayer. You can, you can get on zoom and it's, 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 you know, very convenient that way and opens up a space. And so these people were so frightened, this couple of what they faced and they faced an incredible journey ahead of them that our whole pandemic was framed by Car doing morning and evening prayer with these people and and uh, kind of praying the offices and praying Celtic prayers with them um, and then watching the community walk with these people. And, um, and then in 2022, uh, she died. And now we're walking with this dad and his daughter as they try to put their lives back together in the midst of this grief. And I, I get so concerned that what my my own students think matters is that they have to somehow find some deep well of creativity and out of their own genius save the church. Right. And that these pastoral practices of just walking with people in these incredible sacred moments of living and dying gets lost. And, you know, like you said earlier, Ryan, there there's nowhere absolutely nowhere in our society where someone will just walk with you. I mean, there's people you can pay to listen to you. There's apps that will, you know, allow you to get hacks to your life to, you know, deal with your anxiety or whatever, but just to walk with you, just to, um, be with you and prepare you to die. Well, you know, die well, um, hopefully in decades or just to now face your illness and die. Well, uh, there's nowhere. Most people in our society will turn from that and run from it. Um, and I, I don't want us to lose that. I don't want us to lose the task of the incredible privilege it is to be a pastor and uh, to, to walk with people in that way. Very well said, yeah. And uh, you tell that story in one of your books. I won't, I won't give away where so that people will have to go read all mm-hmm. six of them and find it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but it was, it was beautifully written. And that, that actually leads me to my final kind of selfish question. I want you to talk a little bit about your writing process because one of the things I find so enjoyable is you, I, I don't know how to describe it. The only metaphor I could think of is just like you take all this pop cultural straw 
and you you spin it into gold somehow, you know. And That's and I kind. mean, you're taking stuff like Friends, and which I mean, everybody everybody <laughs> knows Friends, but you know, Bonnie Vare and the Transformer, and no, no, I'm sorry, Transformer Two, right? And all these really obscure pop cultural references and, and you're you're using those kind of the basis of your writing and I just found that fascinating I wanted to hear a little bit about how that works for you is it you know how does how do you get those as, as kind of the backbone or the skeleton for your writing yeah well I mean I'm a little embarrassed because it's starting <laughs> to feel like they're so old because I'm so old you know like um <laughs> I don't know, like my kids who I have a, a, a freshman in college and a, and a junior in high school, the stuff they talk about, I'm yeah. like, what is this? And the, and the way they act in the world, like how they watch YouTube is yeah. the strangest thing I've yeah. ever seen in my life. Like watching people talk about stuff on YouTube just makes no sense to me. Right. So I feel like I'm getting old, but I, I guess it's just that, you know, it's just a, a, a common language for me. I was, you know, a latchkey kid in the 90s raised by television. <laughs> so right. it's just kind of going back to my, my first language in some ways, but uh, yeah, I don't. You know, writing itself is just—it is to me a kind of spiritual practice that that I do. And whenever I'm not on the road traveling, it's uh, I write every morning, and I write for I put myself in in, in prison, and I just yeah. whether it is excruciating or things are flowing, I just do that time, and um, yeah, it becomes it's a suffering. It's a it's a form. It's mm. almost like a monastic form of suffering, but also there's something there's some great joy in it as well. So um, I don't have any kind of methodology yeah. of how I use pop culture stuff okay. other than the terror of staring down the blinking <laughs> cursor and be like, okay, how do I get into this? How do I say this? How do I describe this? Give yourself a little bit more you know, credit because you know, you use Picasso as well and you know, works of art. It's not just, you know, Who's 80s that? and 90s, <laughs> 80s and 90s <laughs> pop culture, but, but yeah. no, it does. I, I will tell you, it makes your writing very enjoyable to read and, and well, many of the illustrate. And the other thing is it makes it very memorable for me. It, mm -hmm. you know, I can kind of latch onto that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I found it interesting. So in, in your sixth book, you, you talk about the importance of memoir kind of in, yeah. in understanding these, uh, and we didn't get you to talk about this, and we don't don't really have time to probably now. But the idea of the secular mysticisms of yeah. our of yeah. our age that yeah. I did want to mention this Nova effect that that Ryan talked yeah. about. Um, you know, that's that idea of these these various ways of of approaching the the or trying to get to the transcendent in some way. Yeah, yeah. But you mentioned memoir, and and you write the book as a memoir, which I found really really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, just a really kind of a cool thing. All these different. Hotels and mostly Airbnbs that you stayed Airbnbs, in yeah, during yeah. during and and through through um, COVID before and 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 at the beginning of and through I found that a really interesting um, kind of method you used to frame that I guess you talked about memoirs as yeah. well so Thanks. do you want to say anything about the the um, secular mysticism I mentioned after I said we don't have really yeah. time to talk about anything <laughs> no the, the only thing is to highlight exactly what you said which yeah. is again. You know, this is why Taylor's book is 770 pages, because he wants to tell us that this kind of secular age is an odd one. This yeah. is a kind of secular age that creates the conditions for all sorts of spiritualities to arrive. You know, like when we usually think secular, we think some kind of rationalistic, kind of deadened, flat kind of yeah. desert experience or, you know, something like that. And Taylor wants to say, no, this kind of secular age creates all sorts of spiritualities. And uh, it, it, it kind of dislodges organized religion, but then also creates these pursuits of needing to find your own purpose and your own meaning, that it has to come within you. It's not outside of you. Well, that that's a big burden. And all of a sudden you feel like you need meditation or yoga or a mindfulness app or just the direction of trying to get your kid into an elite university or something right. like that all of a sudden becomes your your spirituality that gives your life meaning that helps you cope yeah. with the anxieties that helps you cope with really guilt the sense that you could do more with your life than you yeah. have that was really interesting yeah. you talk about this this return of guilt and and yeah. uh, it's a different kind of guilt because we don't feel guilt about sin any longer you yeah, know yeah, we don't yeah, feel yeah. like there's somebody outside judging but it's our own perception of ourselves so mm -hmm. well I explanatory power here. And I've talked about this in one of our other 140 episodes at some point in my <laughs> own life. But just there was a time in my life where, uh, you know, I've read some Rousseau, you you mentioned Jean-Jacques yeah. Rousseau in there. But the thing like, I, I need to be more productive with my time. 
You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so like I'm reading Atomic Habits over here and I'm reading, you know, like I'm doing all this stuff. And then like I'm like, why do I keep failing? And I feel terrible because I'm failing. Like and I get caught in this this rabbit wheel or mouse wheel, whatever. I don't know. Do rabbits go on wheels? (laughs) Do rabbits have wheels? I don't know. They but could. You could invent that. That would be I, amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You rabbit wheel. I got yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> Made for TV. Hamster, All right. So I anyway, I'm on a hamster wheel <laughs> and I'm spinning there and I'm like, it's like, I, I, you know, if I could just do this, I could do better at my business. I could do better for my kids. I could do all right, the stuff. And yeah. it, it turned into this, you, as yeah. you were explaining this in your book, this idea of guilt, like I was, I, yeah. I know I could be something better than I am. Yeah. You know, like every, yeah. I see this guy doing it and that can be me yeah. and why can't I right. do it? And so it creates this, it, it, it creates its own anxiety. And as you're explaining mm-hmm. that this new guilt has found its way back with, even without God, we've created our own sense of guilt and we're always looking yeah. out of that. And it's, I, I thought that was for me and, and your last book really helped open my eyes to how mm-hmm. th- this we see all these things like, well, man, why are they going down that path? Or you, you reference CrossFit, like that's my yeah, life. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and it's, yeah, yeah. you know, we, we create these yeah. things that mm-hmm. are very imminent, very right in front of us, but they yep. become yeah. the thing that we worship. Yep. You know, it becomes this new yeah. thing. And if we can't achieve that, it's our own fault. Yeah. And like, that's, that's not the message. Yeah. That's not the message from God. We're not yeah. magnificent, as you repeatedly <laughs> say right. in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. So um, yeah. the... Uh, um, Oh, I forgot what I was going to say just now. Anyway, it was, is there anything else that what you, if you care to, you want to talk about anything you're working on now? Obviously, you say you write every day. So, what what are you working yeah. on now? Give us a glimpse into the future here. Well, I, I think probably the the best glimpse into the future is just uh, I've been working on. I, I promised people there that this will be it. That the ministry in the secular age series oh, will not. Well, he said at the beginning, he turned said, into six. Yes, yes. it's so. a chiasm. You know, it goes like. <laughs> right. is a good way to think about it yeah i told somebody like i'm gonna have to be done at six and they're like well you know seven is a seven is a holy (laughs) number complete number completeness here man and you said so's 144,000 40 is a holy number too and i don't want to go that route so um 1280 yeah yeah right so uh this will be the end of the series but i just finished a a project that could easily be number seven which is to kind of think about evangelism inside of this kind of taylor-esque in the kind of theological work that i've been doing inside of it so um yeah that that will come out at the end of this year or early 2025 i think and so um yeah so that's that's where we're going. And then the next thing I'm really working on, I don't know if it's going to work or whatever, so I'm even hesitant to say. So I'll, I'll, but I'll, I'll just drop this yeah, if it drop, never comes out. Drop then a hint. People, yeah, is that I'm trying to read next to the Protestant narratives of decline that we have here. Uh, I'm trying to read First and Second Kings next to it because I think oh, there's an interesting, interesting. dynamic yeah. at play with uh, to huh. see First okay. and Second Kings um, as a as a message maybe to our moment. We'll see if it. We'll see if I if I'm yeah. successful. That sounds that. interesting. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll look forward mm-hmm. to that. So, oh, I, I remember what I was going to say is in your in your. I was glad you referenced uh, William Cavanaugh in your last podcast. Oh, one yeah. another one of my favorite Roman Catholic uh, philosophers. But uh, yeah. yeah, I thought I, I, I thought that was an interesting. But yeah. thank you so much. Yeah, uh, Andy, we appreciate thanks it. For me. Uh, thanks for giving up your time and and, and being on here. And uh, best wishes. And and we we love your work. Uh, we recommend it all the time. Encourage our listeners. Go ahead and and yeah. pick up one or all of his books. <laughs> and you know where you could find those at thebiblebistro.com. If if you're interested right. in this, so we've referenced the secular age. I'm going to tell you if you're not in academia. Probably don't, the secular age is not for it. you. Don't yeah. don't don't waste your money. Buy Andrew Root's books, uh, <laughs> and you can find those at thebiblebistro.com, Amazon link. Awesome. We get a small portion of that. But um, Andrew, Andrew, thanks so much. Yeah, I really appreciate, appreciate it. it. Like this has uh, been great. I think this is going to be a lot of great information for. We, we have pastors that listen to this that we know that that are actively in ministry and uh, you know always looking at how do how do we help our congregations you know yeah. live into the work of, of Christ and, and be in Christ. So thank you so so very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for having me. It's really fun. All yeah. right. Thank you. Take care. Bye.